Turn, if you would, in your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Last week we looked at the sixth commandment and the previous section in Matthew 5. Today we'll look at Matthew 5, verses 27 through 30, regarding the seventh commandment. And we'll begin uh, by hearing our catechism lesson We've been going through the Heidelberg Catechism. Now, can I get more than one response this morning to this question? What are the three sections of the Heidelberg Catechism? Very good, very good. Guilt, grace, gratitude, sin, salvation, service, right? We're up to page 892. The Seventh Commandment, what's the Seventh Commandment? You shall not commit adultery, right? Very good, all right? Remember, 85% of professing Christians cannot name the Ten Commandments or the two places in the Bible in which they are found. I pray that nobody in Messiah's Reformed Fellowship is amongst that 85%, all right? Very important if we're to be a holy people, if we're to be different than the world, that we know God's Word and that we follow it, right? So, Seventh Commandment, question 108, page 892. What is God's will for us in the seventh commandment? That God condemns all unchastity, and that we should therefore detest it wholeheartedly and live decent and chaste lives within or outside the holy state of marriage. Does God in this commandment forbid only such scandalous sins as adultery? Very good. Years ago, I was shocked while pastoring in Michigan. A young man came up to me, had been raised in the church, had gone to Christian school, and he said, where in the Bible does it forbid premarital sex? I said, the seventh commandment. He said, no, that's adultery. That's prohibiting sex outside of marriage. I was like, I can't believe I'm hearing this, but this is the state of the contemporary Christian church. No, we need to recognize that the seventh commandment is quite broad and all-encompassing in its reach. So let's read the word of God, though, together, not just the catechism. What does God have to say to us as through his son he speaks to you and to me? Verse 27, Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body goes into hell." Two main points to the sermon this morning. First of all, the dreadful reality of sin. And secondly, the drastic response to sin that Jesus calls for. So the dreadful reality of sin and the drastic response to sin. This exposition of the law and its true character is done by the great physician himself, Jesus Christ who uses the scalpel's edge 
of the commandment to peel away the layers of our self-righteousness and to expose the dreadful reality of sin. His surgical work is painful, but rest assured that he is no butcher who hacks and cuts and mutilates. He is the Savior who wounds only to therapeutically heal and make one whole yet again. So first of all, verse 27 and 28, the dreadful reality of sin. Here the Lord places you and me before the law as a mirror, as it were, all right? As we look upon the law of God, we need to recognize that it has a twofold character. On the one hand, it's a reflection of the character of God himself. And in that aspect, it's a window by which we can see into heaven and view the character of God. Yet on the other hand, it's a mirror in which we see ourselves, all right? And here the Lord places you and me before the law as a mirror so that we might see ourselves as we really are and that we might see sin as it really is. You'll remember that the Pharisees had misinterpreted the law so as to get around its exceedingly great demands. And Jesus says it is not just a matter of deeds, but desires. It is not just conduct, but heart which violates the seventh commandment. It's not just what you commit, but what you covet that violates the demands of the seventh commandment. We see in verse 28, for example, look at it if you will, the depth of sin. I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman lust with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in her heart. Just as an aside here, kind of a throwaway comment, minor digression, this is another proof text for why the Bible is written to men, all right? The Bible is written to men. It includes women, but it's written primarily to men. And no woman sitting here ought to think that they are excused by a man being addressed here with respect to violating this law, that somehow it doesn't apply to women, all right? Don't make that mistake, all right? But... Uh, Jesus uh, here is exposing the depth of sin. He accurately diagnoses your problem and mine. And he doesn't prescribe treatment for the symptoms. I was talking to Dr. Mathai on the way here this morning that a lot of modern medicine treats just the symptoms, gives somebody a pill, but they never get to the root causes of what causes the symptoms. We were discussing that, right? But Jesus here accurately diagnoses the problem, and he doesn't prescribe treatment for the symptoms, but he calls attention to the root problem of sin, which is in your heart and in my heart. It's the foul power corrupting our nature. Look with me, if you would, at the book of James, chapter 1. A very interesting statement made by uh, James there. James, chapter 1. I'm asking you to turn to it because I want you to see it for yourselves. James chapter 1, a further explanation regarding the depth of sin and a verification of what we read in our catechism lesson this morning. Verse 14, in speaking about sinful desire, all right, he says, then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. What's the origin of sin? It's in one's desires, all right? It gives birth to sin, and sin when it is fully grown, brings forth death. What a mixed metaphor to talk about giving birth and bringing death in one sentence. Sinful desire 
gives birth to sin, but leads to death. The deadly desires of the human heart, my heart, your heart, the real root of the problem with your sin and mine. Out of the heart proceed adulteries. Out of the heart proceed evil thoughts. It's not so much what you do as what makes you do it, which is why many of you whom I've counseled in dealing with particular aspects of sin in your lives, I always talk about getting at the motivational root of sin. It's not just a matter of put off and put on as if somehow this was some kind of uh, uh, anonymous program where we have uh, 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 putting off bad behavior, putting on good behavior. No, we need to get to the root of things. We need to get to the motivations of the heart. We need to get to the heart of sin in dealing with it if we are to recognize the real depth and reality of sin. It's not just what you do as much as what makes you do it. But we also learn of the deceitfulness of sin here as we consider its dreadful reality. So often, you and I, let's just admit it, are like the Pharisees. As long as we don't commit the actual deed, then we're okay. I haven't slept with anybody outside of marriage. I haven't cheated on my husband. I haven't cheated on my wife. Everything's hunky-dory. Well, sin deludes and deceives and fools you into thinking that all is well. That's why in James it says, do not be deceived by the deceitfulness of sin. Never a truer word was spoken. As somebody with 35 years in the pastorate that has had to deal with personal problems uh, over the course of that time, so many, many, many problems that I've had to deal with as a pastor are because of people are not taking the deceitfulness of sin seriously, treating it superficially, considering it superficially. Jesus says, no, you need to consider the deceitfulness of sin. Many women would never dream of committing adultery, right? But they're enjoying sinning in the mind sinning in the imagination, sinning vicariously by other means, reading sordid details of people's scandalous behavior in the newspapers. Much of what's on television is just titillating and tempting, and yet we sit there and drink it in as if it makes no difference. Do you read trashy love novels? Even Christian ones, sorry to say. Remember in a church library seeing all these romance novels. How many women are led to sin vicariously by reading this literature? Or, of course, popular media, right? YouTube videos, what's on the computer. And I'm not even getting into porn, right? Porn's a whole separate issue used to be, or it used to be predominantly just kind of a guy problem. But now more and more women are becoming addicted to pornography as well. Why do you do those things? Because you enjoy them. Though you wouldn't commit adultery, in fact you do so vicariously, by proxy, through others. This is also 
covered by the seventh commandment. You're sinning in your heart, in your imagination, guilty of violating the seventh commandment. Too many are happy and content because they're sound doctrine. We sit in the Reformed church. We are confessional Christians. But, 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 you can commit this sin while looking outwardly respectable and all the while sinning in your imagination. I, I can tell you, 35 years of pastoral experience, of having had people come to me and confess not just adultery, but serial adultery, or pornography addiction, or other forms of sexual sin. The last person you ever would have thought of to be engaged in such behavior. Outwardly, everything is fine. Beware the deceitfulness of sin. And look at the destructiveness of sin. Verses 29 and 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Christ repeats this two times for emphasis. Sin destroys people. It destroys people. It destroys individuals. It destroys marriages. It destroys families. It destroys entire churches. Jesus says, pay attention. It always, if not repented, leads to death and hell, suffering and punishment. I forget who it was, somebody, maybe Pastor Kirk or somebody can remind me later, um, who thought that Jesus was speaking literally here, all right? Let's just be clear. Although the Bible is literally true, it's not all true literally, right? There are figures of speech, there are metaphors, there's uh, exaggeration for effect, it's called hyperbole, literary devices. Jesus is being hyperbolic here, all right? He's not being literal. However, somebody in the ancient church thought Jesus was being literal, right? And of course, as a man afflicted with lust, he castrated himself, only to find out it didn't solve the problem. The problem wasn't below the belt that was inside his chest, right? But let's not be blind to the reality of what Jesus says here. You need to be killing sin or sin will be killing you. You don't break God's commandments as, such, as much as God's commandments break you. We need to take sin seriously and its destructive power. Such is the dreadful reality of sin according to Jesus. Well, what's the dramatic response? couple of points here. One, we see the need of a new heart and a new nature, right? If it's our nature, sinful nature, inherently to have these desires that violate God's law, 
then we need a new nature. We need a new heart, all right? Let me be very clear here, all right? When the Bible talks about repentance, it's not talking about turning over a new leaf, all right? It's not talking about making a New Year's resolution. Many of us at the New Year make New Year's resolutions. We're going to lose weight. We're going to read the entire Bible. Uh, one thing or the other, we make resolutions. By the time it gets to the end of the month, they're foregone conclusion, right? It's over. <clears throat> Repentance, all right, is being done with it. Repentance is going this way, disregarding and disobeying the Lord, doing your own thing, living your own life, doing your own. I'm the master of my fate, the captain of my destiny. Repentance is turning around and going the other direction. It's a complete change of mind with respect to right and wrong, with respect to God and reality. It's a complete turnaround, 180 degree turn to follow God, love God, obey God, serve God. And that's the dramatic response that Jesus is calling for here. Nothing less. Nothing less. Nothing less. Thank God there's a Savior for sinners like me. And thank God there's a Savior for sinners like you. Thank God that he loved you and me enough to send his son into the world to pay the penalty for my sin and for your sin and to bear that sin on the cross because the wages of sin is death. It's what Jesus is talking about here, hell, eternal death. But Jesus Christ went to the cross and bore the penalty for sin in the place of sinners who trust in him, who look to him, who cry out to him, who sense their need of him. And come and say, foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Thank God for Jesus, a new heart, a new nature, washed clean in his blood. And it's not just a one-time thing, please. It's something that you and I should do daily. Remember when Paul says to put off the old man, which is being disrupt, corrupted by its deceitful desires, be made new in the attitude of your mind, and put on the new man, which is created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. That's what the Bible terms, or what the catechism, I should say, designates as conversion, right? Conversion is not to be a one-time experience. Oh, I believed uh, Jesus back in 1996. I'm okay. I got the date on my calendar when I was born again. No, conversion is to be a daily experience where we repent each and every day, where we flee to Jesus each and every day, where we beseech him for mercy, forgiveness, for newness of life each and every day, and where we put on that new man created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness, and by his grace and by the power of his Holy Spirit, walk in his ways, follow his testimonies and his commands each and every day. So Jesus says, this is a drastic response, and you need to deal drastically with sin. The problem with so many contemporary Christians, and I know this because I'm a contemporary Christian, is we dilly-dally with sin. 
We minimize it. We downsize it. We degrade it. We dismiss it. We marginalize it. We do anything but kill it. And Jesus says, no. Yeah, okay, it's hyperbolic language. But it's hyperbolic because Jesus is making a point. Don't dilly-dally with sin. Don't play around with it. As if it's something you can entertain yourself with. That you can indulge in just so much. Playing with fire. Literally, Jesus says. Radical surgery is called for. Decisive action. Remember the Teitelberg Catechism a while ago when it talked about conversion. What is a conversion? It talked about repentance and faith. It says, what is true repentance? It says, true repentance is to hate sin more and more and run away from it. Are you doing that? Are you doing that? What does it take to backslide in the Christian life? You know what I mean by backslide? Lose ground. Go backwards, right? You find yourself getting weak. You find yourself getting spiritually morose, right? Dry, one thing or the other. What does it take? Well, the Christian life is like climbing a mountain of ice. The only thing that it takes to keep you from going forward is to stop. And you inevitably slide back. Hate sin more and more and run away from it. Television, the internet, movies, books. How sadly most of us neglect the cultivation of our spiritual life because we're too concerned with this life, not enough about the next. Look at what, look at what Jesus says, <laughs> really. Jesus says, cut it off. Cut it off. You got a problem with the internet? Cut it off. Unplug the router. You got a problem with some particular whatever? Cut it off. Find some way around it. Enlist help. But act. Take action now, today. Don't postpone another minute. Jesus, the Savior, saves one from the guilt of sin, the pollution of sin, the penalty of sin, and thanks be to God, Jesus saves from the power of sin. Elsewhere, the Apostle Paul writes, you are no longer slaves to sin. You've been set free. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit which raised Jesus Christ from the dead, dwells in every Christian. This is what the Savior does for sinners like you 
and me. What's your response? Mine? Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help us. We ask that you would spur us on to holiness in heaven. We ask that you would use your word and spirit to do so, that we might follow you wholeheartedly, undividedly, uncompromisingly. Help those who are ensnared uh, with uh, besetting sin and grant them relief. We pray that they might know the power of the gospel and the power of the risen and reigning Lord Jesus Christ in their uh, lives each and every day. And we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen.